this is Graham Abbott. Welcome to another Classical Uncovered podcast presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. So far in this series, we've looked at some important aspects of music, key, form, ensembles, but in this one, we start a new line of attack. I'm going to cite some really well-known names in the classical music business, some of the so-called great composers, and I'm going to ask a simple question. What makes them so great? I'm not going to lie, I really do regard these composers as great, and I'm hoping these podcasts will spell out a bit why I feel that way. But for the average music lover, and especially for those outside the classical music world, it's absolutely fair enough to ask this question. For someone like me who knows nothing about sport, I could very well ask what makes Donald Bradman so great or Yvonne Goolagong so great. But in sport, it's a bit easier for an outsider like me to understand greatness because scores and statistics and numbers of wins tell their own story. We don't have statistics like that in classical music. And even in other musical fields like rock music, success or even greatness is usually measured in commercial terms, sales figures, numbers of weeks at number one, that sort of thing. Those sorts of measurements might be applied to classical music recordings, but they don't help us understand the music itself. A better parallel with rock music would be someone trying to explain what makes Stairway to Heaven or Bohemian Rhapsody so great as songs, without referring to their sales statistics. Someone once told me that Bohemian Rhapsody is a great song because it's so classical sounding. I rather liked that. Perhaps greatness is easier to understand in the visual arts. Seeing Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling or David, we can readily appreciate the difficulty involved in creating them. But in the non-representative arts, think of Pollock's blue poles, the whole what makes it so great argument flares up repeatedly. Is it just in the eyes of the beholder? For me, part of the problem is wrapped up in that word great. In the early years of my time working at ABC Radio, I used to bandy that word about a lot, referring to great composers or great symphonies, until one of my listeners wrote in to ask what I meant, and to consider if I was overusing the word, which I agreed I certainly was. I had in my mind some huge indefinable canon of great works and great composers, which I found I assumed everyone else agreed with. Sure, we might argue about people like Mahler or Schoenberg, but surely no one doubted the greatness of Beethoven or Mozart. When I thought and read about it, it seemed that many do. Or at least many questioned the unquestioning attribution of greatness to these men, and they were generally all men, and everything they wrote. So, having blown off a few cobwebs, let's start with one of the most famous names in the classical music world, Ludwig van Beethoven. What's so great about Beethoven? The more I think about the big names in classical music and their claim to greatness, the more it seems that there's one thing about them which is easy to latch on to which might help explain their greatness in simple terms. Something almost superhuman about them, which instantly makes them great in the eyes of most people. Most people who know anything at all about Beethoven will tell you what his superhuman feat was. He was deaf. As always, such a simple statement glosses over a lot of the facts. Yes, Beethoven became deaf, but it's not accurate to say that all his music was written under the burden of that disability. 
Beethoven was about 30 when he realised his hearing was somehow damaged. He wasn't born deaf. In his early 30s, it became clear that more than just failing perception, he was suffering from what we might today generally refer to today as severe tinnitus. He heard whistles and other noises in his head which blocked out sounds from the outside world. How much these continued as his ability to hear deteriorated is hard to measure these days, but he did gradually lose his hearing over the next 10 to 12 years. He still attempted to perform as conductor and as pianist during his 30s and early 40s. Deafness finally brought his performing career to an end in 1814 when he was 43, after he'd played the piano part in the first two performances of his Archduke Trio and realised he simply couldn't hear well enough to play again in public. Beethoven lived until he was 56, and all the so-called late works were written while he was, if not completely deaf, then certainly very nearly so. And this is the basis of many people's understanding of the man's greatness. He composed while deaf. I don't want to downplay in any way Beethoven's incredible courage and the way he dealt with his hearing issues over more or less half his life. His determination to rise above his affliction rather than be destroyed by it is obvious. But I see Beethoven's greatness in the actual music he created rather than in the circumstances of its creation. Of course, the two are inextricably linked, but today Beethoven the deaf man is dead and assessing him is nigh on impossible. The music is alive today as much as it ever was and that we can examine forever. That Beethoven was supremely gifted as a boy is beyond question. He had three delightful piano sonatas published in Bonn, where he was born, when he was just 12, and these, along with the work he undertook at the electoral court there as a teenager, bear testimony to his prodigious gifts. But after he moved to Vienna in his early 20s, he set about quite deliberately to make his mark as both performer and composer. As his deafness curtailed his performing, so his composing took on increased significance. But the music he created was new. His mind saw things differently to any other composer of the time. He studied the music of the past, Bach, Mozart, Haydn, and took them as models in some respects, but never could it be said that he slavishly copied his predecessors. His earliest works, the piano sonatas, the string trios, the piano trios, the first two piano concertos, all show an understanding of the past, but every one of them also contains something new, something his contemporaries would have found startling. That's part of Beethoven's greatness right there. But novelty alone isn't a sign of greatness. In Beethoven's hands, these new sounds somehow get inside the head and the mind. To me, great music doesn't just present us with sounds, it also takes us on a journey. Beethoven's music, even the early works, presents us with sounds that intrigue, that caress, that sometimes even shock or bewilder. But that's not enough. Any composer can do that. These sounds have to touch us, interest us, capture us. Beethoven's melodies and harmonies pull us towards themselves at an emotional level. Sometimes he asks a sort of question for which we immediately and usually unconsciously need an answer.
In works like the First and Second Symphonies, almost every bar has us wondering, what's next? He's the musical equivalent of an expert writer of thrillers. It's with the heroic works of Beethoven's so-called middle period that he seems to really revel in taking us on increasingly fantastic and unpredictable journeys. In the hands of someone with a lesser technique or skill, such attempts would rapidly become meaningless, even boring. But Beethoven's understanding of the power of harmony, especially, means that the journeys he takes us on, like some devilish Pied Piper, are irresistible. The symphonies of the middle period, from the third to the eighth, are perfect examples. Harmony and form seem like dull academic concepts to us. To Beethoven, they were tools of enchantment. The end of Beethoven's performing career roughly coincides with the Eighth Symphony and the end of the middle period. The late works, written while he was nearly or even completely deaf, and extremely ill in other ways too, reveal new worlds of sound which even today some find too hard to handle. Beethoven's late period saw the creation of the final piano sonatas, the final string quartets, the Ninth Symphony, the Missa Solemnis, and a host of miniature piano pieces like the late Bagatelles. Whether on a large scale or a minute one, Beethoven's late works break rules, experiment dangerously, push performers to their limits, and require audiences to listen in new ways. But again, in the hands of someone with a lesser technique, such sounds could all too easily be regarded as mad. Indeed, many accused Beethoven of being exactly that. Some still do. To my mind, Beethoven in the late works is writing for himself as much as posterity. I sense very much the attitude of take it or leave it in this music, and for my own part, it took me a long while to come to appreciate the late sonatas and quartets without being repelled by their strangeness. It took time, but it was time well spent. Beethoven knew what he was doing, and our attempts to see into what he was doing will pay rich rewards. But personally, I must confess a special love for the Ninth Symphony and especially the Missa Solemnis. It's music I can't live without. Any good creative artist in any field will summarise their own generation and lead us into the next. It's certainly the case in the music of most of the so-called greats. But there are two composers in the European tradition who, to my way of thinking, did far more than that, who showed us possibilities undreamed of by their contemporaries, often shocking or offending them in the process, and revealed sounds which seem to come from another planet, which open unimagined possibilities to our minds. One of these is Claudio Monteverdi, who lived at the start of the Baroque period, and about whom I hope to share more in a later podcast. The other is Ludwig van Beethoven. I want to end these composer-oriented podcasts with some suggested listening, just to show a little of what I've been talking about. For nearly all the famous composers, there's so much music to choose from, it can be a bit daunting. To get an idea of the boldness of Beethoven's early music, listen to these three firsts. The first piano sonata, opus 2, number 1. The first piano trio, opus 1, number 1. And the first symphony, opus 21. All these works are written in the forms known to Mozart, Haydn and their contemporaries, but Beethoven's use of them is totally fresh and new. 
But the middle period, where the journeys Beethoven takes us on get so much wilder, I'd suggest two contrasting fourths. The Fourth Symphony, Opus 60, and the Fourth Piano Concerto, Opus 58. Again, the formal structures of these works are exactly the same as those used by earlier composers, but Beethoven's twists of harmony and his amazing ability to manipulate even the slightest musical material in fascinating ways make this music very special. And for the late works, I'd suggest the E major piano sonata, opus 109, and the A minor string quartet, opus 132. The sonata is a work in which the composer compresses his ideas into the shortest possible timescale in the first two movements and expands them into a massive musical canvas in the third. The quartet is huge, full of dramatic contrasts, with a timeless central movement which comes from the very depths of Beethoven's personal pain. In both the sonata and the quartet, The journey we're taken on can be shattering, but if it doesn't speak to you first go, that's all right. This is music which might take time to get into. I can only say that it's music which rewards the effort. I hope this has given you some pointers and some ideas for future exploration. We'll examine the claims to greatness of another well-known name in our next podcast. Technical production for Classical Uncovered is by Duncan Yardley. And my name's Graham Abbott. Happy listening.